Hello and welcome to Gamer to Gamer. I'm your host, James Intercasso. This is a podcast where I interview pros in the gaming industry about their careers and the games they love to play. Today's guest is Ed Greenwood. Ed is a living legend, because if you didn't know, he created the Forgotten Realms before D&D even existed. He's also a novelist, librarian, and all-around great guy. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com, where Out of Print is available again. They have D&D and other tabletop RPGs. Any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell back your old gaming products that you aren't using anymore. Let's hear a quick word from them, and then it's off to the interview. Noble Knight is an online game store. D&D, they got that more. And if you think out-of-print games are nice, shop Noble Knight, cause they've got the best price. And if you got gaming products to sell, then Noble Knight will buy them as well. So go to the place where gaming's the bomb and head over to noblenight.com. And don't forget to tell them the Tone Show sent you. Well, everybody, I am here with Mr. Ed Greenwood. He is a level 100 NPC, if I have ever met one. Ed Greenwood, thank you very much for being on Gamer to Gamer today. Hey, thank you. It is, it is really, really an honor to have you here today, sir. Um, why don't you take us all the way back to when you first laid hands on a tabletop role-playing game and describe the experience for me. Were you a player? Were you a DM? How did it all work? Oh, boy. Role-playing game, as opposed to, you know, board games and military (laughs) simulation games. Because I had a father who was doing radar work for uh, um, NORAD back in the Cold War days, so there were some military simulation things. Wow. Kicking around, and and he was into um, sand table wargaming in a very minor armchair way. So I had Donald Featherstone books, oh. you know, all the you know where you take your airfix figurines and you mock up this side and that side uh, on a table in five minutes, so that you can clear it all away for supper time, you know, and not get in trouble with the wife. Th- those sort of books. Um, uh, in my youth, I came across uh, Dungeons and Dragons uh, in 1975. Um, this was the time of the, uh, three booklets, um, not yet in a little white box that came later. <laughs> um, and, uh, I read it. I was an, I was an avid fantasy and science fiction fan mm-hmm. from reading my way through my dad's den. And I looked at this D and D, um, game and I thought, this is cool. This is wonderful, except it's just going to turn into an argument. between the the players and the dungeon master about what happens around the table because there's enough gaps in it, Mm -hmm. enough holes in it. Now, um, that opinion started to change when I saw two things. Greyhawk came out, the the supplement Greyhawk, which added a lot of cool stuff like the Beholder. (laughs) (laughs) And um, also I I came across some Tunnels and Trolls supplements at... um, a local gaming store in Toronto. Um, and 
Tunnels and Trolls not only gave me a, oh, you don't have to do it that way. You can do it this way. <laughs> um, no, so you, you got to see an alternative method. Sort of like um, when you're being told by one family veteran, you know, a farmer, oh, this is how you fix a chair. <laughs> and then and then 50 minutes later, you get the, oh, you know, uncle so-and-so taught you. Yeah, yeah, he's crazy. Let me show you how to fix a chair. <laughs> oh, there's, there's more than one way of doing things. And the other thing about the Tunnels and Trolls is it was the proto-choose-your-own-adventure. Right. As in, it, the booklets turn to page F3 if you decide to fight the troll. You know, turn to page E6 if you don't, if you want to talk to him. So it was like, ah. And that was laying clear in an alternative way mm-hmm. to the way that the proto-D&D books did, that it was all about unfolding a story and choices and that your players should be able to make choices for their characters, not, okay, go into the next room. Okay, now you go into the next room. You have no choice about going back because this portcullis just slammed down. You're trapped in here until you find a way out. Go into the next room. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's and, and it 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 moved it mentally in my head from oh, it's an endless dungeon crawl to okay, so it's oh, it's just the same as in all these fantasy books. And in Fawford and the Grey Mouser short stories, most of the stuff was walking around cities talking to people. Or Shoving your sword through them, but I mean, <laughs> it, it was it was it was interacting in a city, not in a dungeon. So although the dungeon was cool, and mm-hmm. you could you could you could look upon it as like a board game, um, an obstacle course or labyrinth you had to go through, um, it also right away told you, oh, there's a whole world out there, and which is you know where the Forgotten Realms, which I'd already been creating as a short story setting uh, for my own fantasy short stories long before there was a, a D&D game. Oh, I can just, oh, cool. But, but the, what, the, what D&D did, and it really only did it when the monster manual, the advanced Dungeons and Dragons monster manual, and then the player's handbook, which nailed it down, came out. And I said, oh, this is it done right. Good. Here are all the monsters with exactly what their powers are and how they're quantified against each other. And here are all the spells done, done Jack Vance style from the Dying Earth stories I was already used to. And they are fire and forget. You know, you memorize them with great effort. And then when you cast them, they're gone. Mm-hmm. So your, your, your magic user, they were magic users in those days, kids. Uh, <laughs> so your magic user wasn't an endless machine gun of, I get to save the day. <laughs> and if by any chance... You can match me in my machine gun. I have this special thing up my sleeve which saves the day. Duzex Machina, I win. You know, it, 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 it actually turned the magic user around to, he's the weakest guy. So like the quarterback in football, mm-hmm. you have to protect him at all costs. Exactly. So everybody else, you know, does the meat shield thing around the magic user, who's after he's fired his one spell, he gets to carry the torch. <laughs> Literally carry the torch. <laughs> and, and he can, falls down one pit trap, he's dead. Because he has a maximum of four hit points at first level. So, you know, <laughs> you're doomed. No, so, I mean, it, it, seeing it in that format and with everything worked out, said, okay, I'm going to quietly change everything in my fictional world, the realms, to match Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. Not because I intended it at that point to become a Dungeons and Dragons setting, but because it gave me an internal consistency that I didn't have to worry about. Um, I recall reading a, uh, an interview with Don Pendleton, who wrote the Executioner series of um, books, um, which 
by the way, I only ever read one of because I was a librarian and you should read everything so you know what, what it is that a patron is asking for. You know, you're not totally clueless when somebody comes in and says, um, have you got anything about this Harry Potter? And you go, well, that'll be in the ceramics section. You know, no, no, no. You actually know what they're asking about. So I, I had read one executioner book, not to my taste, but they were like endless action adventure shoot 'em up books. And Don Pendleton gave an interview in which he described to his chagrin, he'd actually had the executioner fire too many rounds from this particular sort of firearm in a scene. And he really wishes he could go back and pull that book off the shelves and rewrite that scene and then put the book back so it would be <laughs> correct. And I was thinking, ah, this sort of th- this takes care of that. The, mm-hmm. the rule structure of Dungeons & Dragons behind my story means as long as I follow the Dungeons & Dragons limitations on things, you know, how the magic works and so on, um, I, I mean, I could come up with a new spell. That's okay if I need it for story purposes, but everything should fit into this framework. Then I don't have to think about whether something is overpowered or doesn't fit. Exactly. It will have an internal logic behind, behind what I'm talking about. Right, so the I, rules of the world are already there for you. You don't have to create your own and, and police them then. That's right, and I also don't have to stop and talk about them. <laughs> um, I, I, in the middle of a battle scene, if I'm writing as a fiction writer, I never want it to sound like the sort of talk around a D&D table when it is played like a football game. You know, when the, the quarterback calls everybody into the huddle and he says, okay, you go around the back, I'm going to throw long, but, but I need you to fake short, I need you to run this route in case the blah, 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 blah. So they're planning everything before the round starts, which, you know, is cool, but I don't want it to read that way when you're reading a story. I want it to be exciting and fast and confused and full of emotion and pain if people are getting hurt. I want the, the experience to be on the front, not the rules now the, that are behind it. But if I know the rules behind it, and you know, if my reader starts to feel that the rules behind it, then they they too can relax and enjoy the story. You know, you're in good hands. It's being taken care of. This all makes sense. Um, nothing to see behind the curtain. You know, do pay no attention to that man <laughs> behind the curtain. Just just follow the story. That's so that's excellent. where it started. And, and you know, it was just playing with friends. Yeah. And and from there, it was like. We can story. We can storytell. We're telling stories together. It's not it, and and it was not a. It's not a game about winning. And um, people who've played with me at conventions, all sorts of games, doesn't mm-hmm. matter what it is, will will discover that I don't play games to win. I play games for two things. In my later time, often playtesting. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to do something crazy just to see if it, I can pull it off. So if I'm playing Lords of Waterdeep. For instance, the board game. That's right, right. Great board game, by the way. But, you know, and, and, and no, I don't get royalties. That isn't a plug. I, I just think everybody should play this game. It's great. Um, but I would take a quest that I'm thinking, I probably don't have enough turns left in the game to get this quest done. It's probably not worth it. I'm going to try it anyway to see how, it, you know. And that harkens back to when I used to play Euchre as a young boy with my grandparents and aunts and uncles and i had one granddaddy who was so bored with playing euchre and Mm -hmm. this is how boring it was sometimes he'd deal all the cards face up in front of everybody and say you would have won that hand you would have won that hand you would have won that hand and then he pulled them all together again reshuffled them and redeal (laughs) that was it it was like 
wow, this man is bored up to the back teeth with this game. Mm-hmm. But occasionally, you know, when, when all of the ants were, were saying, Bill, play properly. Bill, <laughs> play properly. The boys at the table, play properly. You know, okay, so then we will play properly. And he'd deal them face down. And then mm-hmm. he'd pick up his cards and he'd look at them and say, I'm going it alone. And, of course, half the time he did not have any of the cards in his hand at all that you need for going it alone without your partner. He was bluffing. Right. And he was going to see how far he could get on just a bluff, just for the heck of it, to make the game interesting for himself again. So, um, quite often, when I'm playing, I'm playing to have fun with friends or to make new friends that I've just met. I'm not playing to win, because I really don't care who wins. Um, So, it doesn't matter if I'm playing a game like a role-playing episode in which there is no clear winner. That doesn't bother me. I'm not there to, you know, woo, I mopped the floor with you. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> that, 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 to me, that just makes me cringe inwardly. I'm just, I just want to have uh, a fun time with my friends, something we can do together. You know, and that's all it is for me. So um, I don't mind participating in a game which doesn't have clear winners. And all too many of the board games we play, because that's the structure of their, their design, are going for a clear winner. And some of them, uh, just to pick one off the top of my head, Monopoly. It's quite cutthroat by the end. You are, you are <laughs> min- eliminating everybody else ruthlessly so you could be the winner. And to me, it's like, oh, no, that's called life. I don't need to do that. You know? <laughs> I just want to have fun. So um, there, were, there were board games where you, which you explored. You went around a little track and did things. And those were always more fun to me because, hey, I'm going places. I'm exploring things. And I, I was always the sort of gamer who, who would play a game and enjoy it. And if it was one of those games where you got somewhere and you drew a card, I would always – and it would tell you what was going to happen. I would always hope that they'd bring out more cards. Mm-hmm. So I could just my, – my old familiar game could become new again. Or if I could somehow get to a printing press, and it, back in those days, BC, before computers, <laughs> you know, going to a printing press was this arcane and expensive thing for men with cigars and three-piece suits who drove Rolls Royces and Cadillacs. You know? Right, right. Um, um, and somehow managed to mock up new cards that looked enough like the old ones that you wouldn't be able to tell them apart when they were dealt face down around the table. Then you could make up your own new cards just to bring cool new things in the game. So you could be surprised again, which is also the attraction of years later of the realms becoming uh, a game setting for the mm-hmm. first time ever. My world could surprise me. Yeah. Well, let's talk actually a little bit about the realms. So I had learned just a few years ago that you actually created the realms before there was a Dungeons and Dragons, which I think is really cool that this setting that everybody loves to play in predates D&D. So could you talk to me a little bit about the creation of the realms and then how you ended up working professionally on this setting that you created? Okay. Mm. <laughs> Well, first the earth cooled. No. <laughs> okay. Um, as a very young boy, I would read stuff in my father's den. And I was allowed free range of all the books he had. And like most people who collected books, he built his own bookshelves so things could be crammed in by size so he could put the most stuff in. And what that meant is I could be reading anything. Because if I picked up a book that was beside the book I was reading, 
it could be something completely different. Um, the, the first edition of Lord of the Rings in hardcover was shelved. The trilogy was shelved on this one shelf. And the next book over was The High White Forest by Ralph Allen, which was a novel of the Battle of the Bulge. So I was jumping from one to the other as I finished one and started the next one just by size. And I would often run upstairs to my dad and say, Dad, 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 this was great. Um, um, where's the next one? I want to find out what happened next. And because my dad had a lot of wartime, give one to a friend in uniform, pulp paperbacks, a lot of the time his answer would be, well, son, if you want any more in that series, you're going to have to write them yourself because uh, that, that author has been dead for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Oh, okay, I'd say. And I'd go running back downstairs, you know, as a kid of five, and four, five, and six years old, and I'd start writing a sequel. A terribly bad sequel, <laughs> a terribly derivative, but I was learning the style of all of these writers by what they did. And one of the things I came across um, in fantasy magazines, which my father also subscribed to, um, and one of, the, one of the magazines was fantastic, the sister magazine to Amazing. And from time to time, there would be new Fawford and the Grey Moser stories by Fritz Leiber published in the pages of these. And each one of these uh, fantasy adventures, which were told uh, with a lighthearted tone and had a Mutt and Jeff um, pair of friends, co-heroes, that, that I was following the adventures of, they all, they all worked as standalone short stories. If you never came across another one, you might have no idea they were a series. Mm -hmm. They worked as, a, as, a, as a, just as stories. But if you had enough issues in the magazine, you'd keep seeing them again and again, and you realize that each individual story told you a tiny little bit more about the world behind them. It wasn't a lifeless backdrop. You were learning a little bit more about the world with each story. I thought, this is really cool. I'm going to do this. But I'm not going to write new Foffer and the Grey Mouser stories, because for one thing, Fritz Leiber's still alive. He's a much better writer than I'll ever be. He's writing away. These are great. You know, I want to do my own sort of thing. The episodes of somebody who's on the move. And I came up with this fat, wheezing, um, covered with food stains, floppy, sea-booted old merchant called Mert the Moneylender. Mert the Moneylender used to be a mercenary war captain, a sort of, well, he chummed around with a guy called Dernan. Who, Dernan was a thinking man's Conan. Instead of the noble savage, sort of, Dernan grew up in the city and so on, but he was, you know, strong and mightily thewed and could throw people around like Conan. But um, he, he wasn't ignorant of the culture that he was in now. He wasn't going, oh, wow, paved streets. Oh, wow. You know, because he was from that setting. And Dernan was the gentle, rather principled, rather terse half of the, the, the party. And Mert was the other. Mert was the fast-talking, fast-acting swindler. Um, politician, um, <laughs> diplomat. Um, and, and so what I started with was Mert on his own, an older Mert. So Mert can no longer outrun opponents. He probably can't outfight them because he's, he's got some sort of a breathing problem. He's overweight, he's wheezing, but he can still outfox them for a short period of time, which gave me a vehicle for moving him because he would go to a new port city on this coast, which a year later I figured it found out to myself was called the Sword Coast. And a year after that, I figured out it was in this world that I called the Forgotten Realms because the connections between 
it and our Earth had been forgotten by Earth. Hmm. The, the forgotten realms and the gates between them is why we on Earth have legends of dragons and wyverns, vampires, and so on. Because the gates used to be open all the time, and critters wandered back and forth, and now they're not. Their gotcha. existence is forgotten, and they're largely closed. Yeah, but anyway, so from our point of view, it's called the Forgotten Realms. They don't call it the realms in the realms. Um, but anyway, uh, so there was Murd. He was going from city to city along the port coast, because at the end of every story, he usually had to leave town in a hurry, a step ahead of whatever enemies he'd just made in the story, or whatever enemies he'd crossed swords with, that he'd already had before the story in the story, plus any creditors, and usually the authorities were involved too. You know, the local law keepers wanted to speak to him, and he usually wanted to be somewhere else in a hurry, so he'd move on. <laughs> so therefore, I was creating the world. And that happened in the, in the mid-60s. So Dungeons & Dragons didn't come along until the mid-70s. And, you know, the wider world, I think, I think um, it was first in print in 1974, but you had to be in the right college campuses to be playing it down in the United States. I was up in Canada. It was 1975 before you could buy it at game stores. And as I said, I, I came across it around then, 75 or 76, but I thought, oh, it's going to be something that everybody just argues with. But it was within 1978 when the Monster Manual and the Player's Handbook and everything came out. I said, oh, this is it. I'm converting the realms quietly behind the scenes so that it fits Dungeons and & Dragons. And around, yes, 1978, um, started playing regularly uh, in the realms D&D &D and started reading Dragon. And in 1979, I first got published in Dragon. And I started writing monsters just drawn from the realms. The, the Cursed was the first, and the Crawling Claw was the second. And these ended up being the first things of mine that appeared in Dragon. I'd actually written a Divine Right um, errata article before for the board game Divine Right, but that was held for a few months for a theme issue on Divine Right. So what happened, what appeared first was the Cursed. And in those days, anybody who could get their hands on Dragon Magazine read it. Mm -hmm. Players, Dungeon Masters, whatever. And there were very, very few alternatives um, as sort of places to get Dungeons and Dragons information. So we all knew everybody read everything. And the, the Dragon's Bestery, or Featured Creature, the um, monsters that I started publishing, they said right at the bottom of the page, hey, these are as official as anything published in the Monster Manual. These are an official part of the game. Ooh, good. <laughs> so I figured it was okay, ethically, to spring on my players, monsters, and then shortly thereafter, spells and magic items, that I'd managed to get published in Dragon because I knew they all read it, but nobody brought stacks of magazines to the gaming table. So it would simulate what their character might have heard in a tavern or picked up in past, past experiences. The, the, the vague, fuzzy memory that they as, as players had of what they'd read. Now, of course, that soon broke down because certain of my players would, had steel trap memories. <laughs> they go, they go, oh, this has three plus three hit dice, and it will fall over if we yell Thursday. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I rapidly learned, oh, I have rules lawyers at the table. But, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the whole point was I could then get it, – it felt right to me if to spring something on my players of my own invention that I, it's sort of been vetted 
by going through Dragon Magazine. Now, I also thought as a writer, it was a little arrogant of me. I was not a staff member at TSR. You know, I was not Gary Gygax. If I started a Dragon article like, hi, my name's Ed Greenwood, and I thought of a new way of rolling dice, that to me sounded a bit forward. And it also was very, um, no, no room for uh, gray, gray or shadowy bits or interpretation. You're either, you know, if you're writing an, uh, an adventure, you say, in room three, there are four orcs and their hit points are, you're being very definite. But if you use an unreliable narrator, and I used Elminster, this wizard, this crotchety old wizard who could blow away any of us he was talking to if he didn't want to talk to us, and who thought nothing of leading us astray if it manipulated us into doing what he wanted. You know, and, and he, he could say things, it's rumored that there are orcs in that ruins, but I don't credit it myself, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So you were leaving the dungeon master elbow room. You were not making things absolutely certain. You, you were leaving interpretation because you knew all the players read this article as well as all the Dungeon Masters. So I was happily writing stuff for, for Dragon Magazine, and that led to two things. My being offered the job of um, contributing editor when I went to an early Gen Con. I think mm. it was Gen Con 13, but it might have been 17. Anyway, Kim Mohan just took me for a walk out into the Wisconsin Parkside ground and says, how would you like to be a contributing editor? That way we, we can use your stuff every month without people complaining. I said, great. Um, like, is there like a salary? And he said, nope, that's the contributing part. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you got paid for every article, everything, as, a, mm-hmm. as any contributor would. But I was, it was a joy to me because I just started in writing. At the same time, what I didn't realize, meanwhile, back at the ranch, um, back in TSR, <laughs> They were looking for a unified game world for the second edition of the game. Mm. And Jeff Grubb had been reading Dragon regularly, and he'd been seeing all these sly little mentions of the realms that I'd been putting in the articles, putting them in as examples for the reader. You know, this is how this works. Here's an example drawn from, you know, the realms. Mm-hmm. But it was really there to say to my players, uh-huh, see players? <laughs> this will be hitting you soon, <laughs> sort of thing. Um, but he said, oh. And he phoned me up out of the blue one day, and he said, do you have a complete detailed world at home, or do you just make this stuff up as you go along? And I said, yes, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he said, oh, okay, call this number. This number is my boss. We need you to have a little talk. Mm-hmm. We want you to send that world. <laughs> and, of course, um, the rest, as they say, is history. And if you want to know the real reason I said yes right away, because, A, I was really excited, and, B, all of my color maps of the, the realms had all my pencil crayon strokes all across all the seas. You could see this blue. I could say, oh, I can get real maps. You know, they printed them, look really cool. Yes, yes, yes. So I said, yes. And now you have the Forgotten Realms. There you go. <laughs> ah, so it was all because you wanted your, your maps to look right. Uh, I wanted my laps, maps to look cool. Yes. And I got that. And I'm still getting that. I mean, the maps, the realms I see today are gorgeous. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they are. So, you know, I think a lot of settings we've seen come and go, but the realms kind of since they have come to D&D have been a staple setting. And, you know, now with 5th edition, they are 
the setting right now that there's only published material for. And it's great. Uh, you know, I couldn't pick a better setting that has more appeal to tons of players across the board that is, you know, D&D as many people experience it or expect to experience it. The Realms is iconic in that sense. Um, you know, so what is it like for you to have continued to work on the realms in novel form and then consulting with the game designers and everything throughout this entire time. And obviously all of the various evolutions the realms has gone through, you know, getting shaken up in the time of troubles and the spell plague and, you know, all of those colossal world-shaking events, watching your world change and also giving up some of that, you know, creative control uh, so that it becomes a collaborative world. How has that been for you? It it actually has been exciting Mm -hmm. and continues to be exciting because the one thing, as I mentioned earlier, that your world can never do for you when you are the sole creator and dungeon master is surprise you. Um, If there are uh, monsters hiding around the corner, they're there because you put them there. And um, the the nice thing about the realms is, and I think this was its attractiveness to TSR back in the day, because they had just devoted all of the company's resources for a couple of years to do Dragonlance, and they they wanted a world that was broad enough to encompass everything from Arctic adventures to jungle adventures, everything from pirates to decadent civilizations with you know decaying cities they needed all of that and they needed it in a hurry and they hopefully needed it in a way that didn't take everybody in the company to work hard on for you know years they and so they were hoping to find one that was ready made and one of the things that the realms had become because my players my original group of players demanded this level of detail because they wanted to they wanted their player player characters to have day jobs, to, to have motives, um, aims. They, they wanted them to have real lives, so they were the things that mattered to them. And so therefore, I was detailing and detailing and detailing all the time. And one of the things I wanted to do, and, and, and I realized that to, to some gamers, it's like, who, who purchase Realm stuff, it's like, oh, do I have to learn all this stuff? Look at this, I'm getting buried in detail. Well, no, just take what you need of it. Ignore the rest. But in the same way that I could know that Dungeons and Dragons had my back as a rule structure when I was writing fantasy fiction, you know, hopefully, that the realms has a coherent, consistent backbone that other people have taken care of that um, in the background, and you can just use what you want. And the, the attractiveness of the realms is it has it's not a world of one story. It's not like uh, what we see in the Lord of the Rings, which is this one titanic struggle, and what we saw in the original Dragonlance books, this one titanic struggle. It's the world of a thousand stories going on at once, at all levels, all sorts, and in order to put together the building blocks that any dungeon master can use to build their own stories, it's essentially a world of power groups, or factions is now the 5e term, um, but uh, I called them power groups when I started, and they and I use that term not to mean that they're all powerful. I use that term to remind myself that a power group can be two gossiping housewives who make common cause behind closed doors, 
right. around their families. Mm-hmm. They can be a cabal of, and I cabal, we go, oh yeah, wizards cabals. No, they can be a cabal of three merchants who just decide they're not going to compete on the price of strawberries in this town. Or they can be the Zentrum. <laughs> or they can be the Twisted Rune. Uh, or, you see, it could be anything you want at any power level. Um, I imagine there were big cabals amongst the dragons back oh, before yeah. the bit that we regularly cover in, in the recorded history of the realms and back before Netherall. You know, I imagine back then there was a fair bit of dragon politics going on. And the very thing that Bruce Heard uh, detailed in another fantasy setting, the Noah world, Mistara, in the pages of Dragon in, in his long-running series of articles, you know, in, in which dragons had their own domains and so on. And, and that's the sort of thing. If you have layers of that behind the immediate things that face the player characters, then anything that interests them, any direction they go in, half your work as a dungeon master is done. And that is what I was trying to achieve with the published realms as opposed to my personal realms, just because I thought, why would anybody buy this stuff? They can all do it themselves. I did it myself. What do they need me for? Oh, they need me to save time. Well, if, 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 I'm, if they're going to pay good money for this and we're going to save time, I've got to do all this work for them. I have to do all the work for them beforehand. Not enough that we had that railroaded adventure where you have to go into the next room. But no matter what happens, you know, if, if one of the players stops everything and says, Why? is this caravan full of watermelons? <laughs> we need to have the answer there because mm-hmm. you know, we need to have all these trade flows and the shortages and surpluses and everything worked out that's going on in the setting. That's what you're paying your shekels for. And that's how the realms came to be the way it is now. And, and the, 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 which is a very long-winded way of saying, <laughs> I've really enjoyed all of this. And although there are times when a I decision, creative decisions have been made on their realms that I wouldn't have made. Mm-hmm. And before you say, oh, yes, please dish the, the, the dirt, <laughs> what I mean is, hey, guys, why did you have to advance the timeline? I'm not finished geographically detailing every single square inch of the globe yet. <laughs> we haven't crossed the sea. C- could you hold off until, you know, before you blow that up and move it 100 years into the future, can I tell people what was there first? <laughs> you know, and then move it 100 years, in the, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's the sort of creative differences I've, I've always had. I always want to cover what's over here and cover what's over there and make sure people know. Um, we're, we don't want to detail Sembia, but we want you to know what a merchant coming out of Sembia or a citizen coming out of Sembia, why they think the way they think. You know, we can say Sembia, the land of fat, rich merchants. Coin is king. Okay, yeah, but what does that mean? Okay, so I did a series of little articles, you know, that ended up on, on the website describing stuff like that, but... There are endless loose ends in the realms, and that used to be one of my sort of cardinal design rules. For every loose end you tie off in a published realms product, I need three new ones. <laughs> I need the elbow room of it to keep continually feel alive and changing, but I want to, I want to do enough coverage that it's coherent. And mm-hmm. it's sort of like if you're a little kid and you've never left your home village and all you get – all you can pick up on your television is CNN, and you're watching all the world news. Mm-hmm. You don't know enough about the world to place it in context. What is this place called China? What is this place called Russia? It used to be called the Soviet Union, and then before that it was Russia. What? You know, you, you need enough about the world so you can picture things in your mind. You could be wrong about what you're picturing, but you need to fix it in your mind. 
in the same way that, you know, in early grades in school, some students will be desperate to get a straight answer to a question from a teacher because yeah. then they understand this bit of physics or this bit of chemistry or this bit of math. If I can get that answer, then I think I got this little bit nailed down in my head. Okay, in the same way, you need to have enough of the realms coherently seen so you can nail it down in your head. You can then change it saying, oh, I want to have talking dinosaurs there. I don't like what Green would put there. I want to have to define. But if you understand what it was and how they all fit together, then if you make one change over here, then it will be obvious that the implications will flow over to there. But if you don't see the overall picture, and that's sort of been my value to the people who are the current designers of the day on the realms. Mm -hmm. I know where all the skeletons are buried. I can see the big picture because I put most of it there. Now, as time passes, I'm falling further and further behind because although I manfully tried or womanfully, excuse me, <laughs> tried to, to keep up with all the reading of all the novels and all of the game adventures, as time goes on and my brain gets over full, I start to forget things, particularly if it's stuff I didn't put there. Right. I've read it. I said, yeah, that's okay, but it, not all of it has stuck, oh. which is why it was great to have really good in-depth say, book editors like Susan Morris, whom I worked with for so many years, um, Aaron Evans, whom I talk to all the time now, we can bounce stuff off each other, and I get reminded, oh, yeah, they made that change to the way the Dragonborn are. Oh, okay. Because, <laughs> because it, and I could talk about it with people, because mm -hmm. otherwise I don't remember everything anymore. Oh. But I still, I get what the realms are, and mm -hmm. therefore when, say, we're doing... The, re the recent Princes of the Apocalypse, um, and Rich Baker reached out to me and said, hey, Ed, I need you to detail Red Larch. Great. Cool. <laughs> That's the part of the adventure I want to do because I think Rich is probably better than I am at doing a, a dungeon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I know where the, what's in the world. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So I can detail the chamber pots they're using in Red Larch right now because this could be important to your adventure. <laughs> and I will, I will design a chamber pot with a false bottom. So underneath the yuck, there's something you need for your adventure. And then Rich will sigh and take it out because he doesn't have the word count to put it in the thing. But, <laughs> but that's half the fun of role-playing and making sure that, you know, this style of play and that style of play are all covered. We got you covered. We, somebody has thought about all this stuff. The worst thing is when if, if something comes out for the realms or something else and there's a big hole in it. You go, yeah, but what if my, what if my players decide they don't want to fight and they turn around and walk away? Mm -hmm. uh, 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 there's nothing in the adventure for that. <laughs> oh, well, geez. They could have put in three paragraphs of how to you know, turn them around again or what else will happen. Mm -hmm. somebody should have thought of that, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, and, and that, that's, that's the fun to me. It's, it's because role-playing is collaborative storytelling and your players should have just as much of a hand in where the story goes as you, the dungeon master have, you have to have this rich detailed backdrop that they can go in any direction because guess what? They will. <laughs> well, let's, uh, Ed, why don't we talk a little bit about sort of, Anything that you have coming up that you would like to talk about? You know, you, you have certainly have a full past, but it sounds like you also have a bit of a full future coming up as well, and I assume a full present preparing for that future. Yes. Well, gee, okay. <laughs> um, this is where I say I'm not just the realms. And I don't mean <laughs> that in, in – it's – I'm a storyteller. 
Of course. And for years, I've been jotting down stuff. And for years, I have been really, really busy pumping out books. And the pile of little ideas that it would be nice to get to someday keeps growing. And now um, I am beginning to develop some of those ideas because it's sort of like, well, it's going to be now or never. I mean, I'm never going to get to this stuff. So I just had a steampunk novel, my first steampunk novel, come out from, from Tor Books, a book called The Iron Assassin. And that was, that was literally because uh, David Hartwell, an editor at Tor, said, Hey, Ed, how would you like to do something different? And write me up a bunch of pitches, a bunch <laughs> of different things, this thing and that thing. And I'll read them all and I'll, I'll pick the one I like the best. And then we'll do that. And so I did that. So I... June has just passed, and in June, I had the latest Realms book, Spellstorm, and then there'll be, I've already finished the next Realms novel that I'll be doing, which is very different from Spellstorm, but still, same old Realms goodness, and I can't tell you anything else about it, so haha, that's it. <laughs> um, and in the same months, I had, I had the Iron Assassin come out. Right now, I'm very busy on a different sort of book, a sort of our Earth, but somewhat Mm, urban fantasy-ish, demonic, whatever. I mm. And <laughs> that will be the first book I publish in a series of settings that are going to be um, published over the next few years by what we're calling the Ed Greenwood Group. Now, that sounds very grandiose, but what it was was um, I was toying with a lot of these ideas, and I got in contact with an old friend of mine who runs an international communications company. And I was asking him, how can I get this published? Because I don't think this is something that, that any of the traditional publishers are going to touch. Mm -hmm. So we talk back and forth about self-publishing. And what I do is build worlds. And I had a whole bunch of ideas. So things snowballed. And it was like, some of my friends would like to write in some of these settings. Okay. Well, if they're going to write in some of those settings, I sort of have to like describe the world enough that they can get started. In other words, a world Bible for like each setting. And so we are heading up to um, a setting launching this fall, which will have that first book I'm working on now, followed by another setting, followed by another setting, followed by another setting, followed by another <laughs> setting. And um, we see a, a international with international authors you know, writing in different countries in different languages in a whole bunch of settings. I can tell you that um, there'll be a, a, a sort of um, wide-scope fantasy setting. There'll be a, a steampunkish setting. The, there'll be some science-fictional settings. There'll be some, uh, hmm, well, yeah, there'll be a whole bunch of settings. Um, we'll reveal stuff when they're ready. But what we've been doing the last few months is working like little beavers, trying to get everything ready. So that when we start announcing things, readers who get interested in these settings can expect to see a line of novels. Whoa. That will not, you know, there will be stuff there. If you like it, you can climb aboard. There will be a game to go with it. And I, well, there'll be more than one game. There'll be a role-playing <laughs> game to go with it, of course. But there'll also be other sorts of games. Card games, dice games, board games. Something different for each one. There'll be games to go with it. There'll be, there'll be artifacts that go with it mm -hmm. so you can you can buy the sword you can buy the you know that sort of thing <laughs> um we're, we're, we're playing around with all sorts of ideas 
And this will be um, the sort of thing where the fans essentially drive it. If it's something that's really popular, we'll do more of it. If there's something that's not so popular, well, you know, because of the way we're publishing, we're never going to leave a reader in the lurch. We're never going to ever leave a, a story unfinished. We're never going to say, like a traditional publisher sometimes says, oh, book two of your fantasy trilogy didn't sell very well, so we're not publishing book three. Well, that's never going to happen. The story is going to um, be satisfying that's in front of you. But it's going to be – things are going to morph depending on which, what things readers love. Wow. So you are going to be creating more universes for people to consume, to play in, and to just you know roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty uh, in some good fashion, good old-fashioned Ed Greenwood storytelling. Oh, yes. And um, although there will be lots of established professionals writing in these worlds, and you know, as you've probably seen for our, from our announcements – You'll be able to see um, some of them in science fiction magazines, and, so, and you'll be able to buy ebooks all over the world and enhanced ebooks and so on. There will also be a chance for fans to get to write fanfic set in the world. We're not going to stomp on that. We're going to say, fine, do it. <laughs> um, and, you know, if we read your fanfic and we like it, you may just get a call to do a novel. <laughs> you know, why not? You know, wh- why should the fans be shut out? This is their world. I mean, one of the things that, that has been so exciting about the realms over that many decades has been how many people I've ended up working with who've been on staff at Wizards of the Coast or, you know, a freelancer with lots of credits whose work I love and respect get told by them, it's such a thrill to be working with you. My first venture was sitting with my mom or my dad playing and it's like, <laughs> And now I feel old, you know, but, 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 but on the other hand, it, it's, it's the great thing. Oh, good. You know, this person came to the realms. Okay. Well, I, we want to be able to do that with all of these other worlds. And mm-hmm. it's, we, I, the other thing is I want to have fun. I want to do rip roaring yarns. Mm-hmm. Okay. There, one of the things that's happened over my lifetime of being a fantasy and science fiction fan is although the genre has gotten deeper and broader and more successful and moved into the mainstream, there has also been, as we've moved to longer and better and more literary and more serious works, there's also been a move away from good old-fashioned pulp adventure, you know, the ripping yarns type thing. Well, this is a chance to get all of that stuff. So somebody can do a big, long, serious book, but hey, you want a ripping yarn? So we do have a space opera setting, for instance. You know, you want to see people zipping through hard vacuum clad in, you know, leather jumpsuits, firing ray pistols? We'll do that! (laughs) (laughs) So you have a lot of cool projects here that you are inviting people onto. You're encouraging storytelling, which I think, you know, some people, some storytellers are very protective of that material, and some are, are... you know, turn up the sharing and community engagement aspect. It sounds like that's very important to you. Uh, why is that? For me, gaming has always been playing with friends, family and friends at the beginning, and published gaming, you know, the stuff um, that I started writing in Dragon Magazine and ever since, has taken me all over the world to meet people. A lot of them have become friends, and a lot of the people you've had on your Gamer to Gamer um, podcast are friends of mine that I met through gaming. 
And some of them I, I get to see once a year at Gen Con, if that. And yet we can pick up conversations and as if, you know, we, we've just been apart for five minutes to hit the bathroom, you know, and then come back together again. Um, because I, I, I love their minds. I love the ideas they come up with. Um, so if it's somebody like Rob King or, or Susan Morris or mm -hmm. uh, Jeff Grubb, um, Eric Boyd and, and George Crashos down in Australia, who um, it's very going to be very rare my chances to go and darken his door and say hi, you know. But but we we connect via email and by phone and, and at rare conventions and talk about the realms. Well, in the same way, this will this will mean that I get to to play with and acquire a whole new bunch of friends. And for me, that's what it's all about. Hanging out with friends. Um, most of my time at Gen Cons these, these last decade or so has been spent eating and drinking. And, you know, I'm a fan of eating and drinking. But, you know, I go and sit at a restaurant with friends and we, we talk about the games we're playing and our, our plans for the future. Or we actually pull out a game and play it at the restaurant and, you know, shove the plates aside and the waiters roll their eyes and here we go again. You know, but I mean, for me, that's the fun. And this is the fun I can see really taken to the nth degree. Um, we're, we're up over 15 settings we're planning on now, and there's probably going to be more falling out of the woodwork. Not all of them mine, by the way, but I mean, we're, 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 we're getting up there. So that's like, Ooh, 15 times the fun I'm having with the realms, you know, uh, who could say no to that? Exactly. You know, and, and so I think that is a wonderful thing that you are doing this for the community. And I certainly can't say no to that. Uh, and I'm <laughs> glad that you can either. Uh, so uh, one final question, because I know we're getting short on time here. Well, we'll we'll do two. We'll do one where you know we can direct all of the people to the various ways that they can find you and find out more. Um, but uh, before we get to that, what games are you playing right now? What are you enjoying? Anything? Board games, uh, role playing games, video games? How are you spending your time? And and what are you enjoying doing these days? Who boy? Well, there's. First of all, there's all the stuff I can't talk to you about. <laughs> and, and the stuff I can't talk to you about is the stuff we're working on, the rule systems we're working on of for this, the new publishing adventure. So um, I'm working on that with a bunch of creative people, in, including um, my head of game design, Stephen Shent. So we're, we're talking back and forth and, and playing with that. In terms of established games, I have less and less time to play fun games these days but a perennial favor remains the lords of Waterdeep board game um that wizards of the coast came out with which i have had the pleasure of playing at a lot of recent conventions and it's just a fun game to play and it, it, it's like a euro game it's a building game you can actually play lords of Waterdeep without ever trying to fight your opponents just working alongside them and seeing who outpoints each other by the end of the game. You know, although inevitably you're going to get in each other's way because one of the things in the game, you have to occupy locations in the game to do things. And once one person is in it, nobody else can put their meeple in it. You know, so there, there is a, a, a getting in each other's way. But you can actually play that game without directly attacking each other, which actually makes it a very attractive family game for people who are not gamers. You know, war gamers, board gamers, role-playing gamers. The moms and dads who are a little uneasy about this conflict thing. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they can actually play the – because for some of them, it will evoke enough of a monopoly. You know, oh, so I just build properties, eh, and get rich. Oh, okay, I can do that. I'll do that over here. You know, so they can do that without fighting each other. So that's one game that uh, I play a lot of when I do get the rare chance to play. Uh, the other thing I've been doing recently is um, looking through a lot of the games I've bought over the years and haven't had a chance to play. I like short, wacky games. Um, a lot of the cheap-ass games, you know, Exploding Cow and stuff like oh, that. Oh, yeah, it's it, so fun. It's, yeah, it's great fun to, particularly when you can pull up a game and hand it to a non-gamer and say, and they go, what's this about? And you explain it and they laugh. And you can explain it in like two word, two sentences, two minutes. And then you can sit down and play and they can just have fun. You know, that sort of thing is very attractive to me. Uh, my, my life has changed to the point I can no longer do the sort of games I found awesome when I was 14, which were the sort of um, SPI-style games, Drangnack Austin, Fortress Europa, stuff like that, where you put the game on a sheet of galvanized metal on the wall, and you put all the units in little magnet clamps. <laughs> and once a week, you spent an hour making one move. You know, <laughs> so that a game would take all year, because it took that long to move all your uh, forces. And a fascinating game, but, you know, and but... Nowadays, I want the uh, Arkham Horror, the board game, the original Arkham Horror, as well as the new one. Um, games like that, that are more colorful, that are fun, that are wacky. Um, Red November, uh, games like that. And when it comes to the um, role-playing um, side of things, um, some of the Pelgrane uh, press stuff, the uh, Bookhounds of London and so on, that, that Ken Haidt and, and Robin Laws have been doing, um, those sort of things that I've been involved in creatively... I usually involved in the creatively because they really grab me and it's stuff like that. So I, there, I, I have sort of different sides. I also like these fun little games that you can play in five minutes with about, you know, four or five little chits moving on a board. I like that. It doesn't have to be complicated because I just want to have fun with friends. I, I, I don't have to win. You know, um, there's a, there's an old SPI game called winter war, um, mm-hmm. in which, uh, you're fighting in Finland. And one side is defending and one side is vastly um, greater in resources and is attacking. But it's hard for that vastly superior attacking force to win because of the, the game limitations. So that's a fascinating game to play over and over again and see, you know, that's, that's the sort of thing. Um, the RAF game where you're, you're playing solitary, you're trying to fight the Battle of Britain as the, uh, the British side with not enough planes and not enough airfields because they keep getting bombed, and not enough fuel to keep everybody in the air, and you're desperately trying to fight, and you can play that alone into the night. You know, that sort of thing. Those, those are fun. That's the sort of thing that grabs me. I would love to play a game like that with you sometime, but it sounds like you are a busy man, and we live plane rides apart. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> however, uh, there are ways that people can find you and reach out to you. What are the best ways for people to look at what you have going on and coming up? Well, probably the best doorway in mm-hmm. um, is theadverse.com. Because mm. that's easy to type and remember. Um, the only thing you have to remember is when you, when you type the adverse, yes, there are two E's in a row. <laughs> um, and the other way, particularly if you're interested in something professional, is 
office at greenwood.com. And again, got to remember, there's two E's in a row. The end of office and the beginning of ed, that's two E's in a row. Office at greenwood.com. And that that second one will take you to all the people who are working with me, if you look under the cessorium. And it will also um, hint about some of the things that are upcoming, some of the things we're working on. And those are the best ways to get a hold of me because um, – and, and I have to say this as an apology who's ever, anybody who's contacted me on Facebook. They may think at times I ignore them or I don't care. No, it just means it's it's another three months or another six months till I get back on Facebook. <laughs> I know there are people who live on Facebook, but um, I don't. I can't. <laughs> when I work in the library on the computer, I'm actually not supposed to be doing stuff for me. I'm supposed to be doing stuff to help the library patrons, so I'm not on Facebook. So, <laughs> um, And, and the, those are the best two ways. The, the adverse.com and the adverse will lead you to office at greenwood.com. And office at greenwood.com is where you can see the professional stuff I'm doing. The stuff that you can hopefully sometime in the future either read or gain. Wow. That is excellent. Ed, thank you so much for coming on Gamer to Gamer today. And we will link everything we talked about that can be linked in the show notes for this episode over at thetomeshow.com. Sir, it really has been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you. This has been great fun. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so much more to cover. So Okay, cool. <laughs> People, if you have a question or comment about the show, you can reach out to me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. Or you can reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thetomeshow. And a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about exploration age. It's the fifth edition D&D world I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.me. Tons of resources for your game for free. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening, and thanks to Ed for being on the show. Also, many thanks to Jeff Greiner and Sam Dillon. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Remember, never give up. Life is a game. Eventually, you gotta roll a 20. <laughs>